All right, everybody, welcome back to the showcase. I'm your host, Paris Jackson, and on today's episode, we're going to go ahead and cover the 1999 NBA lockout shortened finals pitting the San Antonio Spurs against the New York Knicks. Also, just talk about some events going on around the world and, of course, what was going on in 1999 prior to the finals. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the showcase. All right, so we got some news of this past couple weeks about who's kind of coming in, who's going out. Of course, some NBA players are choosing to sit out for one reason or another. We haven't gotten a bunch of big names, to be honest, that are sitting out so far. It looks like Dragon Bender, um, Avery Bradley, Lou Williams could potentially sit out of the return at the end of next month but as of right now nobody big nobody to write home about as far as you know sitting out and not returning to the play in Orlando at the end of if the end of July so nothing really to worry about there um no other real news I mean we got some dates on when teams are going to be actually going to Orlando to sit in what's up JG anyway um Perks of doing a live stream. Can say what's up. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, let's just dive into what was going on in 1999 prior to talking about this NBA season. Now, 1999 and 1998, the back half of that going into it was kind of a crazy year. I don't know how much of people watching this actually remember. I mean, I, I personally was five, so not too much of this as I was reading through really stuck with me. Um, the biggest thing in... 1998 on September 4th, Google was founded. So, I mean, I use Google on a daily basis. Uh, I'm sure mostly everybody does, and not a lot of people know that it started right at the tail end of the 90s there in 1999. Um, so Google launched September 4th. Towards the end of the year, um, I talked about this in my last episode, of course, but we have the impeachment of Bill Clinton, which was the first actual impeachment of a president that went through all the way to getting him impeached. Now, um, what a lot of people don't remember, including myself on that last episode, was that Bill Clinton actually got acquitted of all of his charges and actually got to finish out the rest of his presidency all the way through to the 2000 election, which was, you know, kind of mired by controversy, but we'll go ahead and talk about that in a different episode. But all during this year of 1998 and then the subsequent year of 1999, this impeachment totally hung around Bill Clinton like it wasn't going anywhere. Um, so that was kind of cool to watch watch all that and, and the followings of that. I'm sure a lot of people remember it. I you know clearly remember like the headlines and people talking about it, even though I was only five at the time. So it's kind of crazy to look back and, and see it be part of two episodes here in you know 1998 and then finishing up in 1999. So the the other event that I really wanted to talk about happened in February of 1999 and involved a Guine Guinean immigrant in New York City by the name of Amadou Diallo. Now, the name might sound familiar. There's actually a player on the Thunder that I've talked about this year named Amadou Diallo. He was in the dunk contest. Um, you know, Action Bronson has a song called Am Amadou Diablo, and it's referenced throughout culture his name like there was an episode of the boondocks that had him in it and just to give you the background story of what happened with Amadou Diallo and want to make some parallels as to what's going on today of course so Amadou Diallo was walking home tell me if this sounds familiar he was walking home after midnight after a meal and when these four police officers in plain clothes 
drove by. The, the police officers' names are Edward McMillan, Sean Carroll, Kenneth Boss, and Richard Murphy. So these four police officers drove by and said, hey, that guy looks like a serial rapist we were trying to catch a year ago. So, okay, let's back up a second. This man was walking home after a meal, presumably after working, and these officers decided that because this gentleman looked like a rapist that they had been trying to catch a year before that they would approach him as this man walked into his house. And this is their, their claim. The officers claim this. Diallo ran up the outside steps towards his apartment house doorway at their approach, ignoring their orders to stop and show his hands. The porch light bulb was out and Diallo was backlit by the inside vestibule light showing only a silhouette. Diallo then reached into his jacket and withdrew his wallet Seeing the man holding a small square object, Carroll yelled gun to alert his colleagues. The officers opened fire on Diallo, claiming that they believed he was holding a gun. During the shooting, lead officer McMillan tripped backwards off the front stairs, ca causing the other officers to believe he had been shot, which is total bullshit. So Dia Amado Diallo, a man that was just walking home, minding his own business late at night, was shot 41 times by these officers. 41 that's 10 shots apiece. I don't even think that's like your full clip. That's your full clip that you shot at this. Anyway, so February 4th, 1999, Amadou Diallo gets murdered in the middle of the night by these officers, plainclothes officers who, you know, if I was walking home and four gentlemen ran up to me that were obviously probably pretty big, I would be scared shitless. And this man pulled out his wallet and was murdered in the middle of the night. Sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah. We're, that's kind of what we're dealing with with Elijah McClain, who recently got murdered at the peak of all this Black Lives Matter protests and everything else that's going on against police brutality. It's still happening to this day, what's happened in 1999 and what's happened long before that and continued to happen between then. So anyway, you fast forward like a month and a half and these officers had an investigation conducted by internal affairs, as they always do, and believe that basically the findings of the investigation believe that these officers acted based on what a reasonable police officer would have done in the same circumstances which means there is a default definitive problem with how these officers have been trained but let's talk about that in a second so a month later on march 25th the Bronx grand jury indicted the four officers on charges of second degree murder and endangers Reckless endangerment, sorry. Kind of like what's happening right now with the officers of George Floyd, right? They've been indicted. They've been charged. What happens next, I think, is hopefully different than what happened back in 1999. <clears throat> but basically, what happened is these officers were acquitted after basically about two days. They were acquitted of all charges and let go free. And it actually wasn't until... April of 2002, nearly three years later, that the street crime unit, which was these plainclothes officers crime unit, was actually disbanded and gotten rid of. So it took actually three years and probably countless other incidents, maybe not to this level, but of basically racial profiling and identifying targets on the street for these police officers to, you know, stop and frisk. Remember those things that were going on? And that was, a, you know, it took this man getting shot 41 times for something to actually happen, which is fucking incredible to just to just see and hear. And then it took three years just to disband this closed unit. Sorry, I'm going off a rant, but you draw that to parallels of the day. 
Yeah, JG with the inspected deck comment, you know, with the line from inspected deck. In the daytime, the Jakes hit you 41 times, right? Exactly. Well, that that's where that line is from. You know, it has to do with this Amadou Diallo shooting. I mean, how do you get shot 41 times? Like, even if he only got shot four times, that's still way too many. That's one shot per officer, you know? And just because one of them tripped, then you unload another 37 of the clip. Like, that doesn't make any sense. All right. So that's enough on that end, but it's crazy because you see it happen today still with Elijah McClain, and it's like you, it blows your mind how this still could possibly be happening and has been happening this whole time. So, I mean, that's a lot about that one, but and, and I want to move on to the next event, but hopefully it got your wheels turning a little bit about why all these people are protesting, why like everybody has to be an advocate, and it takes not just the black community, but every community to really get behind these motives and have some changes some real changes about how the police is ran in this country all right let's talk about two other things that happened in, at the tail end of 1998 that carried over into 1999 so if anybody's heard of these two people you know kudos to you and and the research you've done on the history of this country and all that stuff but these two people matthew shepherd and james bird jr were both Two individuals that were part of, we'll call it a minority group. James Byrd Jr. was a black man that lived in Texas. And Matthew Shepard was a gay student that went to the University of Wyoming. Both, both, in 1998, Matthew Shepard in October and James Byrd in June of 1998, both were picked up by individuals, white supremacists, driven out to a rural area, beaten and tortured to death and left basically to die in Matthew Shepard's case he was basically attached to a freaking post he was tied to a post pistol whipped in the face and left to bleeding and died until somebody else found him about 12 hours later in a coma he died six days later from his injuries and then James Bird Jr. in Texas same thing was picked up by three white supremacists was brutally beaten in a rural area and then his body was tied to the back of a pickup truck and driven along three miles three miles he was driven on an asphalt road just dragging and the only reason that these three white supremacists stopped and i'm using white supremacists but i really should be using a different word for these people but the only reason they stopped was because they swerved and hit the edge of a culvert and it severed his right arm and head which made the rest of the body detach from the rope. But this lynching, both of these were lynchings that happened in 1998, were just more of the injustices that minority groups, and minority groups aren't even right, but just people that aren't white, middle to upper class people experience in their daily lives. And some of the people experience microaggressions or simple, you know, getting called police on for having a barbecue or something like that. But like these two people these two not i'm not gonna say hero they're not hero you know but two normal people who were just minding their business were brutally murdered just for being different for james bird jr for being black and for matthew shepherd for being gay at a time when i guess you know being gay was not okay for whatever reason this was only 20 years ago this wasn't that long ago this is in my lifetime this is likely in your lifetime if you're listening so it's kind of crazy, right? And and this is the craziest thing, right? So 
and you tie this into what's happening with Bubba Wallace. So a lot of you know this Bubba Wallace story, NASCAR driver, only black driver in the league of NASCAR. He found a noose in his garage, and the FBI decided to not label this as a hate crime because I don't know if you know this, but I had to do some research on this. But hate crimes are something that you can actually get persecuted for the worst out of anything possible that you could possibly do. Hate crimes are the worst. So anyway, I decided to highlight these two lynchings because they're pretty important and they kind of explain how the system works in general on in America, right? So in 1997, the Clinton administration tried to push forward hate crime legislation that basically brought to what today's standards are of hate crimes, right? 1997, it got denied in the Senate, because the Senate was a Republican at the time. The bill gets reintroduced in 1999, and this time gets denied by the House, okay? It takes multiple years for this bill to even make it back to the floor during the Bush administration. In the Bush administration, he act George W. Bush actually came and said that we don't need tougher laws. I don't know what the context was on that particular thought, for that thought process but that's what he said that we don't need tougher laws we don't need hate crime laws and so he even went as far as to say that he would veto it meanwhile over 500 americans have been lynched in texas between the end of slavery and 1995 so anything that happened after 1995 there's not a lot of data on i couldn't really find it in the research i was doing but 500 americans have been lynched in that time that's over two a year if you're doing that's like three a year it's really ridiculous it's like one a season that you're gonna find an american that's been lynched by another american sub-american really if you ask me but whatever you know but anyway so this bill gets reintroduced in 2007 and gets denied and then in 2009 which is after barack obama took office in about late 2009, it gets signed in the bill, and it's called the Shepherd Bird Law or something like that. But it basically takes the most brutal punishments we can give and assigns them to hate crimes. But it kind of it blows your fucking mind because this is the it shows you the power that's in politics and who they're really leaning towards. Because it took 12 years for somebody to pass legislation over hate crimes and real and then it gets named after not the black man not the not the hundreds of lynchings that have happened across the country but it gets named after the white gay man that got crucified i don't know what else to say there all right clearly i'm fired up so if you feel some type of way about what i'm saying maybe you should check yourself you know but you read all this and what what's happening and it's and it's fucking crazy so anyway this bill gets passed in 2009 making hate crimes obviously the worst punishment that you could possibly get in the judicial system so then you fast forward today and what happened with Bubba Wallace and this whole new situation and it's it makes you think a little bit why did it not get labeled a hate crime I mean this we all saw a picture of it this is clearly a noose it's hanging straight on down and for whatever reason they decided to not only to not label it a hate crime not label it a crime at all which means nobody's gonna go get found Meanwhile, this person, whoever hung this in here, had the means to get into this garage and leave something. And who's who's to say that this time it's a noose? Maybe next time it's a bomb. Maybe next time, whatever, it's anthrax or a freaking little bit of coronavirus. I don't know. I'm just brainstorming. But if we're not tough on this, 
there's no chance to be tough on something else or prevent something else. And shout out to Bubba Wallace, man. What he's doing is is revolutionary in his sport of NASCAR. If you want to call it a sport, it's just a bunch of left turns to me, honestly. It bores the shit out of me. But honestly, what he's doing, the way he's standing up is is Bill Russell-esque. And you guys know how I feel about Bill Russell based on my last podcast, our last meeting. All right? So it's kind of crazy, all right? So just think of all those numbers and everything that else happen right so holy smokes man i'm all fired up about this and i still haven't even gotten to the last thing i want to talk about which is april 20th 1999 i think we all know what happened then we had the columbine massacre high school massacre right there's these two kids eric harris dylan kleboyd opened fire killed 12 students and a teacher and then they blasted themselves like people chalked it up to anti-government and anarchists whatever right probably they just needed a hug the list of reasonings go on forever it's they're attributed to death metal it's crazy like all the recent theories and reasonings on why these two psychos decided to open fire on their high school you know whatever whether it be cyberbullying or whether it be not enough attention bad grades too much pressure from their parents they get all the reasons under the sun of why they snap which is whatever i just think that they were two fucking loons but whatever anyway so Columbine shooting happens, and that's when you get schools across the nation to really adopt like a zero-tolerance policy to weapons and threatening behavior. There's like a crackdown on bullying. There's like all these – the schools start to like really implement like cracks down on like pressures of mental health and bullying and that type of stuff, which is probably a good thing, honestly, like – if I have kids, I don't want them to be bullied. I don't want them to be in an environment where they don't feel that they're safe to express themselves, to learn, and be in school. And school should be a, a safe place for you to do that, you know, to, to really find out who you are and, and do all that. So I'm, I'm with all that, you know, and having weapons there is not cool. You bet, If you're a kid, I get it, right? You bring a bat to school or nunchucks or whatever the fuck you want to bring, like, and there's an air of cool around that. But... At the same time, for you to bring that and make another kid feel unsafe or that he shouldn't be there or uncomfortable in his own skin is not cool, right? So anti-bullying, I'm all about it. Teach our kids to respect one another. Perfect, right? Here's where the shit gets kind of crazy, okay? And I'm going in on the police a lot on this episode. My uncle's a cop. I have cops in my family. My nephew's a cop. My brother-in-law's a cop. Like, I, I fuck with cops. I think that there is a time and a place for them, but some of their tactics are need to be reformed and here and here's where shit goes crazy so you know you remember i think it was two episodes i talked to you guys about that holly north hollywood shooting where the two guys had ak ak's and they ran up in north hollywood injured like 17 people and police officers and that's when people started talking about oh like cops should have a certain amount of you know armory before you know to prevent another one of these tactics from happening well Columbine happens about a year and a half later, and police departments are really reassessing their tactics now, right? Because this is two events, basically on other sides of the country, but nevertheless, two events that make national media where basically the police look like they just weren't prepared to take on these these threats. Because basically, when Columbine happened, the police used uh, a traditional tactic, which was surround the building, set up a perimeter contain the damage right and what they did after this was 
employ a tactic that's called immediate action rapid deployment tactic. And basically what it means is a team of four officers forms like a diamond and they advance into an ongoing shooting site and they use this tactic to basically like move towards the sound of gunfire and neutralize the shooter as quickly as possible. But what they also do is ignore any wounded or injured or possibly you know life-threatening injuries on their way to the sound of shooting now i full disclosure i didn't do 100 percent research on this officer so i don't know you know if these are just the first four officers on the scene or do they go get like equipment at the armory and then go and then what is everybody else doing but this is the tactic that police officers do i, I assume that it's multiple groups of four and they all move on the shooter and ignore victims and injuries basically and their goal is and i get the reasoning their goal is hey let's get to the shooter and take him down before he causes too much more damage and if you think about that i guess it makes sense like if you have a fire you don't really like you know start rebuilding the house until you put out the fire but in this case what i think it really does is that it teaches people to go on the offensive rather than play on the defensive, right? So the tactic before was like, hey, let's set up a perimeter, let's contain the damage. Kind of sounds like a fire, right? Let's set up a perimeter, contain the damage, and then we'll go ahead and, you know, do what we can about the shooter and, and prevent him from getting any further. This, there's no containment at all. They're just trying to go in and take and take the offensive and go ahead and take down the threat. And I think that you get a switch in the mindset of, hey, let's take this down before they take us down. And then when you start to spread that across everybody, that's when you start to get these these tactics like the chokehold, like the officers just slamming people to the ground and putting them in cuffs before they actually assess the situation so it's kind of crazy and that and and follow me as i string together these events right like you have the north hollywood shooting then you have this columbine shooting um two months prior you have what's happening to amadou diallo where he's getting killed like you look at these events all over and you wonder why it took us this long to have these protests like we had the trayvon martin protest in 2012 but all through the 2000s at least for me I don't really remember seeing all that many protests in the same way, you know? And I think it's because, like I mentioned before, I think we had 9-11 that brought us all together and decided, hey, we have a different enemy that's across the way, which is quote-unquote terrorists. I ain't getting into all that today. All right, I already spent a lot of your time talking <laughs> talking about all this stuff, and we're supposed to be talking about basketball. But I had, a, I like, as I go through this in the history of each of these years, it's kind of crazy, and you just, you just, you just draw all these parallels to what's going on today and and how really we we should have been doing these changes a lot sooner and having these these sayings a lot sooner so whoever's listening to this i hope you guys are doing something to freaking spread the word that this shit ain't cool let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the actual season because this year was a long year anyway All right, we back. Here we go. So, the 1999 season was shortened to 50 games because of a lockout. Now, remember from the last two lockouts, a lockout is different from a strike in that a lockout is usually initiated by the owners, right? So, here's what happened. In 1995, as you can remember, the six-year CBA was signed and included a three-year opt-out clause for owners if players' salaries exceeded 51.8% of basketball-related income. So that's income from ticket sales, jerseys, 
licensing, everything that goes into running the league, well, all that income, minus a couple things like operating costs, I'm pretty sure, is how they determine how players get max salaries. Well, in 1995 and 1996, you had players like Kevin Garnett, Shaquille O'Neal, Alonzo Mourning, like they were all getting $100 million deals, which was crazy. And that exceeded 57% of the basketball-related income during the 97-98 season. So on March 23rd, 1998, which is before the end of the last season even ended, so while MJ and the Bulls are making their second three-peat, the owners decided to reopen the CBA. There's 29 teams. They voted 27 to 2. It's fucking crazy. So on April 1st, negotiations started. And, of course, basically it's a battle of greed, right? The players want more and the owners don't want to give it to them. So they're just going back and forth, back and forth. And then the players in May had a proposal from the owners that include a hard cap, the elimination of the bird rules, and a five-year rookie sale with the right of a first refusal but basically the players were like nah that's that's that doesn't work for us because we can't earn more than 30 percent of a total salary cap total team salary cap so they were like nah we don't want it because the most you can make was 10 mil a season they're like we can make way more than this you know look at Shaq, look at kg they're making way more so that was out so proceedings stopped everything stopped this the season ended the bulls won the championship and then on july 23rd this union the nba players union basically filed a labor complaint and said that the the lockout was unlawful so long story short that that claim gets denied and now these discussions go back and forth back and forth back and forth and then with finally in september september 10th the for the first time ever the nba lost a game when they had to cancel their miami heat exhibition game that was scheduled for october and then the talks went longer. And then training camp was canceled. And then rookie orientation was canceled. Then the preseason was canceled. All in all, about, I think, 354 total games were lost in this whole thing. In, in between what would have been the preseason back in October and then when they finally ratified this deal in late January. So basically what happened was in December, David Stern set a date of January 7th that said, hey, if we can't reach a deal by this date, we have to cancel the season. And both sides were like, well, we cannot have that happen. But both sides were not willing to give an inch. So, of course, the, the owners wanted to keep as much revenue. The players wanted to make as much revenue. And it literally took a secret meeting on the night of the 5th of January between the representative of the NBAPA, who was David Falk, and then David Stern. It was a battle of the Davids. And then there was a couple other people in the room that have big names that I just decided to leave out. But basically on January 6th, the day before this deadline, they reached an agreement and it was ratified the next day. So basically this, the fallout is the NBA's player salaries were capped between nine and 14 million, depending on how long they had played in, in the NBA. And then there was rules on a rookie, rookie pay scale, how much they can make in their few years and how it would scale up. I don't have the exact numbers. It's just too much to even, and these numbers have all changed because there's been two CBAs since then, one in 2005 and one in 2011. When we get to 2011, I'll break it all down for you because nothing's really changed since then, but we do have a new CBA coming up. But anyway, so <clears throat> the bird rules were maintained and basically the luxury tax was put into place. And luxury tax, if for those of you who don't remember, basically teams have a salary because there's big markets and small markets, right? Big market, Los Angeles, New York, 
probably has a lot of money. Small market, that'd be like your Denver's, your Memphis, middle of the country, random ass city has a team. You're like, damn, they have a basketball team. They don't even have a fucking Applebee's. Yeah, that city, the luxury tax makes it all even, right? So it sets basically a cap where it's, hey, your team cannot spend more than this amount of money. And if you spend this over this money, let's say it's at $100 million, right? And you decide, hey, I want to spend 105 million. Well, guess what? You can spend that 105 million, but that extra five million actually gets redistributed to everyone equally. And we had a question come in on the live stream here. Given the amount of players who are opting out of Orlando, does it lessen the meaning or importance of this year's NBA Finals? It's funny you should say that because I'm talking about this 1999 lockout season. A lot of people know that Tim Duncan has five championships, right? They know Popovich has five championships. Do they say he has 4.5 championships just because he played a 50-game season to go ahead and get that championship? No, right? No, they had to go through a normal finals. If the finals proceed as normal with most of the stars playing, I would say there's no asterisk by this season, right? Because the people that are going to make it into the playoffs – we're likely going to make it into the playoffs anyway. For those teams that are battling for the eighth seed, there's only been one time that an eighth seed has upset a number one seed, and that was in 1999 when the Knicks did it, and then they went to the finals. And then, actually, I lied. There's a couple times, right? The Warriors did it in 2007. The Grizzlies did it in 2011. And I believe one other team did it more recently than that. But it hasn't happened a lot of the time, right? And... If everybody decides to go and play in Orlando, then pretty much everybody is going to be fully squatted minus one or two people. Now, if you get somebody like Giannis or LeBron test positive for coronavirus in the conference finals, then yeah, okay, you're going to put a giant asterisk on it and say, hey, this wasn't a legitimate championship. But pending everybody staying healthy and pending everybody deciding to opt in, and play who matters, not like your Avery Badleys who can easily be replaced, but like real actual players like, you know, like Donovan Mitchell, Giannis, LeBron, AD, Kawhi, Paul George, like the real top all-star players, as long as they play, I think that this finals holds the same significance as before. But good question. Back to what I was saying, though. Got me th totally thrown off track. The luxury tax, if you spend over that amount, then you have to disseminate it. So all in all, like all this was happening and the, the league lost a bunch of games, right? They weren't able to keep their 82 game season, obviously. And so they opted to have a 50 game season and 50 games. It's really not a lot. I mean, it's, it's plenty, but it's not a lot. Just to give you an idea, the Knicks made it into the playoffs with a 27 and 23 record. They were like the third worst scorers in the league and had like the fifth worst defense so and they made it in the playoffs and then they beat out the one seed and made it all the way to the finals which is the only time an eighth seed made it to the finals of all time um so given that you're having all these talks you see just a crazy decline in the um attendance of games it's like down 2.3 percent which doesn't sound like a lot but it's actually like in a stadium of 18,000. It's 2,000 people, right? So down 2.2%. You see the ratings just drop off a cliff. Like Michael Jordan's NBA Finals, I think average viewers for each game was like 30 million. And then you go to the next year, and it's 
about half that and has never really recovered. And I think you get two things that factor into that. One is this lockout, right? And people are like, hey, you know, now we have a, a negative connotation of these players because they're just greedy and they want more money. And then on the flip side of that, you get like – these owners are greedy and it's just a it's a bad look for everybody right because everybody's money grubbing and then they're taking so long that they run into the season don't really have a season and just end up with a shortened season it's just bad right it's a bad look it's what's kind of what's happening now with baseball and then now we've seen we see baseball coming back at the end of next month finally to play a 60 game season i think this and that will draw a lot of criticism like you don't already have a lot of eyes on baseball and now i think you'll have even less especially now that it has to basically bang up against NBA, right? Because that's, that's where a lot of baseball draws its viewers from. It's also where it loses a lot of viewers from, right? So baseball season picks up right around the near the end of the NBA season, right? You get like training camp, spring training camp, and then like February, March, they start playing games, but they really don't mean anything. You have all the eyes on basketball. And then at the end of, and end of the basketball season, people have not shit to do and they turn their attention to baseball at least until football starts but now you have baseball starting eight days before basketball and you just you're just not gonna have the attention so you're gonna see the ratings for baseball drop off a cliff the same way that you're gonna see the ratings for basketball drop off a cliff back in 1999 when there this lockout was happening and there's no pandemic in 1999 so obviously the national attention is a little bit more on that the other thing that contributed, I think, to the major decline in viewership is that you get Michael Jordan retiring six days after they ratified this agreement. So this lockout agreement was ratified on the 7th. It goes into effect on January 20th, and literally smack dab between those two dates, on January 13th, 1999, you get Michael Jordan retiring again. And he comes out and says, basically... Yeah, you know, I've climbed all the mountains, you know, I've gotten all my championships, all my accolades, like the hunger really isn't there. But here's what really happened. Phil Jackson was out. Scottie Pippen was out. Dennis Rodman was out. Even Steve Kerr was out. He didn't get traded. He just bounced. But the team had been blown up. And all you left was with Jerry. And Michael didn't like Jerry. And so Michael was out. He's like, forget it, dude. I've won three championships in a row. I got six titles in the last eight years. Tried baseball. There was a strike. I was out. Came back to basketball, won three championships. There's a strike. I'm out, right? Same thing there. So it's kind of you know, like Michael Jordan and lockouts just don't mix. So if you want Michael Jordan in anything, just don't go on strike. Don't have a lockout. He'll he'll probably stay for longer. So that's what happened with that. I'm going to take a quick break real quick, and then we'll come back and actually talk about the series. But that's, that's what was going on in league, everything. Nothing really happened in 1999. There's no all-star game. There's no – pretty much anything right you just get these teams playing like a really short schedule and then they go ahead and start the finals it's kind of whack so anyway i'm gonna pause this back okay so let's talk about this this playoff run which is kind of crazy it started with the knicks going ahead and and shocking the world as coming in as the eighth seed as i already mentioned they had the worst one of the worst offenses in the league and then one of the worst defenses in the league, but still managed to squeak into the playoffs. And they upset the number one seed Miami Heat in a big way, who was actually had a pretty good team, cornered by Alonzo Mourning and Pat Riley. Like, if you don't know Pat Riley, you should probably look him up. He's OG. It's like 
like the godfather of basketball, basically, next to Don Nelson, who might sell you like a used car that won't run for that long. But anyway, so the Knicks upset the Heat. Then they move on and struggle against – who was it? I'm trying to remember here. Anyway, the Knicks move on and play blah, 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 blah. They play the Hawks. That's right. They play the Hawks clean up the Hawks, and then they face the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals, take them to six games, and then they're in. Basically, Larry Johnson hits a off-balance, game-winning three-pointer, and he gets fouled on it, so it turns into a four-point play that he actually does to seal the victory against the Pacers, and then they move on to the finals where they face the Spurs, who went on what was then a tie for the best postseason record of all time when they basically won 12 games straight, right? They, they opened up the first round. They played the Minnesota Timberwolves. They won game one. They lost game two, and then they didn't lose after that, right? So they played, so they played the Timberwolves in round one. Then they go ahead and smack Kobe and Shaq in round two. A lot of people don't remember this, but they swept them, right? Shaq getting swept again. You guys remember last time I was talking about Shaq's legacy of getting swept. And if you don't remember, Shaq gets swept by the Pacers his first year. Then in the first round, right? Then he makes it to the finals and the Magic gets swept. Then they get swept again the following year in a playoff run. And then he comes to L.A. And then sweep, sweep, sweep. Like, like literally look at Shaq's playoff record up until his first championship in 2000. It's pretty much all sweeps. I think he has maybe one or two playoff wins in there the whole time. So now you get this whole narrative about, hey, can Shaq really perform in these big games? Or how, how would you, hey, can Shaq really perform in these big games? Maybe not. It's a terrible Shaq impression. Don't make fun of me. Anyway, so, okay, so the Spurs beat the Lakers in four, and then they move on, and they face the Blazers, who now have Scottie Pippen. This is the Jail Blazers team or the start of it. Take care of them, sweep them, no problem, right? So they win 12 straight on their – or not 12 straight. At this point, it's 10 straight. And then they come in to play the Knicks, and they have home court advantage because, they're, again, they're playing the eighth-seed Knicks. And honestly – from game one to game five, you knew that the Spurs were going to win this game. The other thing about the Knicks that I forgot to mention was they still had Patrick Ewing, who was still a pretty good player, but he gets injured in game two of the Eastern Conference Finals, ruptures his Achilles, and, he, and he's no good for the rest of the, the season, right, or the postseason. He can't play anymore, which is another factor in the lockout, which we might see in Orlando this year, which is players getting injured more because now they're – they're just out of shape, basically. They're out of shape. They're, they take all this time off. They're not really prepared to come back and play at a high level, and so they end up going out of shape. But anyway, so my literally my first note in game one, first quarter, you can tell Spurs are better team from the jump. Um, Duncan and Robinson have this, like, twi- they're nicknamed the Twin Towers. I'm not even kidding. They're nicknamed the Twin Towers, and they're just smacking the Knicks. And, like, the, other, the thing that's not really helping out the Knicks is that they just don't get good looks in most of this first game or first quarter, especially. Um, and Tim Duncan is just, he's literally just going off in the first half of this game. He already had 19 points and 10 rebounds at the half. That's like full stat numbers for like your key role player guys. And he had it at halftime of game one. Um, and the Spurs come out to a, a 45, 37 lead. Um, 
the Spurs are just smacking the Knicks. Like, they're getting good looks. The Knicks are, but they're just missing a lot. They really don't have an answer. They're, they're like, bigs of this dude named Chris Dudley, who is just a liability. He's basically, like, a foul every time he's on defense. And then he just misses everything, so he's not very good. And then they have Larry Johnson, who was suffering from, like, a knee injury despite hitting, the like, the game-clinching, series-clinching winner against the Pacers. Um, they just didn't have weapons. And then they had, like, Latrell Sprewell and Allen Houston, who are really good guards, and, like, they were better than the Spurs guards. But they just didn't have an answer for Tim Duncan and, and David Robinson because, basically, they would go to one, and Chris Dudley would close out, Larry Johnson would close out, double-team him, and then they would just dish it to the other, and that'd be, like, Tim Duncan and David Robinson or David Robinson to Tim Duncan. And so they're building these runs. They have, like, an 8-0 run. They have a 14-2 run to close out the second half. Surprisingly, they're only, they're only up by, like, 8 at the half. Um, but it, then they come out in the second half, and, and the same thing. They just keep going doing that Robinson to Duncan connection where basically one drives – he gets double team and he dishes to the other. And then if they miss, they just go up and over them and then are able to get the bucket. So, like, the whole game one, you're like, the Spurs are going to win this series. There's no way. But the Nick, what the Knicks figured out, and the Knicks are coached by Jeff Van Gundy, and I gave Jeff Van Gundy hella shit at the beginning of this because I was like, he's not good. He's like, I just don't like him as a broadcaster. So I'm like, oh, he can't really be that good of a coach. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think he's – like that good of a coach but then you look at Jeff Van Gundy's record and he coached this this Knicks team to a finals he coached the Rockets in the Tracy McGrady era he coached the Magic when they went on their run to the finals with Dwight like he has really good accolades on his career like if you go ahead and pay attention to like Jeff Van Gundy what he's done in the league and it makes sense that he's a broadcaster now he's actually like a pretty good basketball mind uh, and I didn't want to give him credit but whatever but what he figured out was that he could play Marcus Camby who got more of a rep like playing on the Nuggets in like the mid-2000s but he was on this Knicks team and he was good but in game one he got into foul trouble kind of early and so they couldn't use him as much and also like Latrell Speedwell and Allen Houston were just were really good guards but they just weren't reliable either they were hot or they were cold um and just and just couldn't do enough to go ahead and secure the win so the Spurs go ahead and win that one 89 77 and that 12 point lead that they had is basically throughout the third quarter and the fourth quarter game two is very much the same as game one so all the same right like Tim Duncan to David Robinson um Alan Houston Latrell's pretty well trying to do what they can um and it was fun. I, don't get me wrong. I watched all five of these games, and watching Latrell Sprewell just, like, slash and take it to the hoop is, like, braids flying in the air. It's, like, it's really cool to watch. And Allen Houston got hot, too. But just the rest of the Knicks, other than Marcus Camby, were just, like, either defensive liabilities where all they would do was foul or they just they just had no answer for Tim Duncan and David Robinson, right? They were just two bigs that were too dominant. And then you, you factor in the fact that Tim Duncan could shoot like no other big on the court. And just the 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 Knicks just had no answer. There was a point in game two where they were like four of twenty three from the floor, which is terrible. Um so that's game two. Game three is actually in New York, and Jeff Van Gundy puts Marcus Camby in the starting lineup, and the Knicks come out, and their shooting percentage is way better. This is probably because they're actually in New York, and they're playing in front of their home crowd. It's like, hey, you know, 
you at least got to take care of home. And then you got to steal only one on the road. So we gave up two road games, whatever. Let's just come back to New York and play better. And they did. They like they shot way better coming out of the first quarter. They built an 18-10 lead super early. Played really good defense on the Twin Towers without fouling. Like Marcus Camby's, like I mentioned, is is doing really well. Allen Houston is in his bag in this first quarter of Game Three. He had 16 points in the first quarter, which is really high for these numbers. Like these these games rarely went above 100 points. Rarely went above like 90, 95 points, honestly. So like to have 16 points in a quarter is like huge during this era of basketball because it's a lot of like half court possessions, right? You're not going in on as many fast breaks as you get today. You're not shooting as many three pointers as you are today. So like it's half court possession, half court possession. And then you're like looking for the open basket and shooting jumpers or like trying to get the easy layup and it takes a lot more time. So having 16 points in the first quarter is really like having like 25 points today. Like it's all the same because they're not shooting three pointers, like I mentioned. So at the end of the first quarter, the Knicks are leading 32 to 21. Second quarter, Spurs start to like heat up that connection again. They're playing a lot better. Their guards are playing a lot better. Antonio Daniels, um, Mario Ellie, Avery Johnson, like all the all the Spurs players are starting to play together. And of course, they're headed up by Pop. So as their game goes on, the coaching gets better and better as Pop learns to adapt and granted he's only in his second season as a Spurs head coach but he coached this team to a championship whether 50 game season or not call it what you want he coached this team to a championship so anyway so at the end of the second quarter it's 49 46 and you go into the third quarter and basically the Knicks should be leading by a bunch of points but they just can't convert these second choice second chance opportunities and they miss like six straight shots um, but still managed to lead by six at the end of the third. And I'm kind of going through this fast because I feel like this is a long podcast, but whatever. Um, and then in the fourth quarter, Sprewell and Houston are still slashing, and they're just getting fouled left and right, so they're able to get to the line. And, and then, of course, the Spurs have to sit out, sit players out and can't play certain players because they're getting into foul trouble. And the Knicks managed to squeak out this 89-81 win, and now you're like, oh, okay, this is a series, right? Don't be fooled. It's not really a series. Game four comes in, and, like, Charles Ward is playing good for the Knicks. He drops, like, 10 in the first quarter. But Jaron Jackson is just, like, throwing down these three-pointers. Mario Ellie is, like, got this old man goatee. He's, like, all great in his goatee, and he's hitting three-pointers for the Spurs, which is, like, rare in this time, don't forget. Um, and But the Knicks are making it a game, so it's 29-27 at the end of the first still getting played close still getting played close but the spurs go on like an 8-0 run at the end of the second to make it 50 to 46 going into the half and then they come out in the in the third quarter and immediately extend that lead to an 8 point lead and basically just never look back right so they lead 70 to 61 at the end of the third and then they hold on to that lead all the way through the end of the game like Spreewell and Allen Houston are going off the 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 Knicks score 33 points in the second half, and Sprewell and Houston had, like, 26 of them. So when I say, like, they're the only two players, and then Marcus Camby, who's really better on defense, like, you know I'm not kidding because you just look at the stats, and they had all their points. Literally all their points. It's fucking crazy. Um, and, and, and I made another note here, and it's funny to notice, but, like, Tim Duncan and David Robinson had – 
33 rebounds in the game. The entire Knicks team, everybody all together, had 29. I'm going to say that again. So Tim Duncan and David Robinson had 33 rebounds in the game. And the entire Knicks team had 29. So they're getting outboarded by these two dudes, a.k.a. the Tim Twin Towers. Fucking crazy. Uh, so Spurs win that one, 96-89. And then game four is very much the same as the previous games where the Spurs just take an early lead. It's like 20 to 23 or something like that. And then um, in going into the half, the Spurs are up by two. But this is where it gets actually pretty interesting, and it's a good game to watch. It's such a good game that the NBA actually has this on their own YouTube channel. Like, I didn't have to go and, and find some, like, random person that actually posted it. But if you if you watch one game from this series, watch this Game 5 game where the, the Spurs clinch the championship. And basically what you have for the entire second half, and I shit you not on this, like, I'm pretty sure of the other Knicks players, there was, like, five points scored. But you get... Latrell Sprewell and Tim Duncan literally just trading baskets all the second half. One would score, the other would score. One would score, the other would score. And mind you, at the start of the third quarter, it's only a two-point game. So you're getting these two trading baskets going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The only thing is, like, Tim Duncan, obviously he's got the post-up game. He can beat you down low. He's like a big man. He's a 7-1 shooter. Like, he can shoot from all these places. you got to respect anywhere that he is with the ball. And Latrell Sprewell, on the other hand, is just a guard. He's obviously, like, shorter than a lot of the players on on the court. And he's just slashing. He's doing fadeaway jumpers. He's shooting jumpers over Tim Duncan. Like, it's literally a battle between Latrell Sprewell and Tim Duncan. They're just going back and forth, back and forth. So, please, like, spend the hour and a half. Not even the hour and a half because you can fast forward all through the first half of the game and watch the back half of this game where it's, like, Latrell Sprewell versus Tim Duncan and it's kind of crazy because it, it comes down to the very very end of the game Tim Duncan had had like 32 points in this game I think Latrell Sprewell had like 27 um and you see freaking this battle going on back and forth and it literally came down to the last shot so at the, at the very end of the game it's like 77 76 uh, Knicks are up with about 2.05 left. They pass, they dish to Larry Johnson, who misses a wide-open three-pointer. Mind you, during this whole five-game series, the Knicks had only hit 11 three-pointers, which is crazy. Like, you look at a team like, even, I'm going to use the Rockets. They're like the most, they shoot the most threes out of anybody. But even if you look at a team like Memphis or like Milwaukee or like Denver, they would probably hit like, eight or nine threes in a game today so it's kind of crazy to see that in five games they only hit 11 total three-pointers throughout these five games it shows you like how different the league was back then than it is today but anyway so larry johnson misses this wide open three-pointer and then avery johnson on the other end gets the go-ahead bucket with 47 seconds left on the clock the Knicks decide not to go for the two-for-one, even though they're only down one. So it's it's 77-78. Knicks have the ball with 40 seconds left. They're coming down court, and they decide not to go for the two-for-one. And it's an interesting choice. Like, I get it because you get the bucket, then all you got to do is get a stop and hold it. But you have to recognize that Latrell Sprewell is basically your entire offense right now. You got to get somebody else going. Like, Jeff Van Gundy should have drawn up a play. So so that they can get the quick two for one. Maybe this wasn't 
that widely used back then. People just believed in defense more. But like me personally in this situation, elimination game, I would have went for the two for one just to have safety. So anyway, they don't go for the 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 two for one. Latrell Sprewell gets this like it's not a great look, but he's he's the hot hand, so you gotta feed him. And he misses, right? So the Spurs come down the court. There's twenty eight seconds left on the clock when they get the ball. So they have to come down and shoot because otherwise it's a shot clock violation. They jack up this super wild three, and the Knicks end up getting the ball back with 2.1 on the clock, and they're down by one. Charlie Ward inbounds the ball to Latrell Sprewell, who's under the basket and no defenders around him, but for whatever reason, he doesn't go up with the ball. He, like, pump fakes a couple times, dribbles away, and then shoots an off-balance fadeaway, but by then... The clock had expired. He only had 2.1 seconds, and he wasted them with these two two pump fakes. Walks away and then and misses his shot anyway. And the Spurs clinch the championship in New York. It's the Spurs' first championship, Tim Duncan's first championship, Greg Popovich's first championship, David Robinson's first championship, Mario Alley's third championship. But anyway, so it it's kind of crazy to watch this whole series and just like. You got to give it up to the Knicks, honestly. This is the last time they got this far in the finals, or even were worth mentioning, other than maybe like Lynn Sanity during those years. Like the Knicks just haven't been relevant in a long time. And they, despite missing arguably their best player in Patrick Ewing, really took this Spurs team and at least made it competitive for some quarters, right? Like other quarters, they just got blown out. There's games where they lost by 12, there was games where. Like, basically, the margin of victory for every game was, on average, like, six or seven points if you take away the uh, the last game where they where they won. But, um, yeah, you got to give it up for the Knicks, and especially the Charles Freewell, who just put the team absolutely on his back for this last um, this game, this last game, this game five, which actually happened 21 years ago today on June 25th. So, you know, happy first championship, Tim Duncan. Anyway, so all that's happened. And it was crazy. And then, like, you move on to the next season. And, of course, you get the Lakers start of the three-peat, the first championship of their three-peat. And, but with that, so the Spurs won in 1999. And they were the, and they didn't win in 2000. And they were the actually the first defending champs since 1985-86 Celtics who did not win consecutive championships. So, for those of you that aren't paying attention, so every champion from... 1987 on one back-to-back so if you're ever needing to remember the championships teams for whatever reason let's say you call into a radio and they're like name all the champions between 1987 and 2000 everybody who won won twice right you got the pistons they won twice chicago won three times in a row rockets won twice chicago wins three times in a row and then you get stuck with you know, the Spurs in their one championship. Who would be back? They win in 2003, 5, 7, and 14. So they got a few championships. Timmy D, Timmy D has all of them. He's my boy. That's why I got the jersey. Anyway, and so that was it. That's the championship, and that was a wrap for them. So anyway, kind of a long podcast today, um, but I think it was a good one. It was great to talk about everything that, that we went over today. Thanks, y'all, for rocking with me the whole time. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, But, you know, I'm PJ. This was the showcase, and we'll catch you next week to talk about Kobe and the Lakers.